Hey, listeners, happy Friday. Welcome back to The Rich Equation. If you're a new listener, welcome to The Rich Equation podcast. I'm your host, Ashish Nehithu. This is another episode. I think it's episode number 10 of The King's Table, which can only be found here on The Rich Equation podcast. Again, my name is Ashish Nehithu. So if you're a new listener, welcome. Uh, Mike, Maddie, and Mooch have all sent all of our listeners to this podcast this week, and we're going to rotate for the next four weeks. So just welcome. I really appreciate all you guys that are listening that are new. Um, please subscribe to the Rich Equation podcast. If you've not heard of us before, uh, download, subscribe, send us comments, feedback, anything that you want to hear us more talk about either on the Rich Equation or on the King's Table. Um, the Rich Equation is a podcast about life. It's uh, what does it mean to live a rich life? We have five pillars of richness that we delve into every single week, whether it's in interviews or my own solo episodes, really an exploration of what it means to live a rich life, both income, uh, how to increase your income and your wealth, and also just all aspects of life, relationships, energy, personal self-awareness, and uh, many, many aspects of life. And we really go deep with subject matter experts that I think are super interesting and super fascinating. So I just want to say welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for listening to The King's Table and supporting this new journey that we're on. The four of us are having so much fun and really enjoying doing the podcast uh, and, and sharing with you what's on our minds and the issues and the processes that we're going through right now. So thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe to The Rich Equation Podcast. And here it is, episode number 10 of The King's Table. Welcome to The King's Table, another beautiful episode my name is Ashish Nathu, your host with the most. I am joined by my guest here, uh, Aaron Amujastegi, the trendsetter himself, uh, Maddie Atchison uh, from Sacramento, California, the hero of hospitality. And we have the sage flying in from Phoenix, Arizona today, Mike Ayala. And we have Mike just for a little bit, so we're going to try to maximize his time, but he has graced us with his presence, so I'm super excited for this episode. Um, here we go, guys. We have a lot of fun things to talk about. I want to start with um, the obvious topic of Israel and get into that a little bit and go around the table to get everyone's thoughts. Um, this is a, a topic that I actually have not been super close to in my life. Um, I don't know much background about it, but the last couple of weeks I've studied a ton. Uh, as of October 8th, Israel was invaded by a group of Hamas out of the, um, out of a, a small region in Israel, uh, called Gaza, where there's about 2.2 million Palestinians who live there in what people are considering to be, um, the largest open air prison on the planet. There is a small piece of land. I actually am willing to open up a map here so that everyone can understand the geography of what's going on here. But there, there is a small piece of land in Israel called Gaza where 2.2 million Palestinians live. It's a really small piece of land. Um, it's incredibly dense and poor. And a terrorist group called Hamas invaded, basically broke through walls, um, took prisoners, uh, created a bunch of havoc and it's been all over the news. I'm sure you've seen it. Uh, and it's just absolutely terrible. And Israel has retaliated with some very intense retaliation. They've basically bombed the hell out of, uh, out of Gaza. 
and the pictures are just horrific. So again, just learning about this and I don't want to be insensitive by my, my ignorance, but I've been just watching all this, trying to learn as much as I can about the history and really just trying to think about what are the right questions to ask as I go through this process and have this almost curiosity without creating conflict type of mentality of learning and thinking about it. Um, it's really clear that somebody's defending themselves and everyone has the right to de- defend themselves. But at what point, you know, as humans living on this planet, do we, do we cross the line? Um, you know, from what I'm reading, there's a lot of human humanitarian uh, agreements that have been basically void and thrown out the window in the way that we're doing things here. Um, Israel has cut off water and electricity and food to to Gaza, which, from my reading, is is not is not legal. Um, also, they were also attacked. So there's definitely conversations to have on both sides. Um, and again, I don't want to be insensitive to people that are really in touch with this, but I really wanted to just start with having an open, open conversation about, um, about this situation, you know, and what are the right questions to ask about this? And, um, I, I suppose for me, I'm thinking about what's right. And, you know, th- there's two, there's for thousands of years, these people have been fighting over land. They're not fighting over much more. I mean, yeah, sure, they're fighting over ideology, but they're really fighting over land. And is this worth fighting for? And what is the cost of fighting for this? So I'm just going to start out with that, and then we'll go where we go. Um, Mooch, you look like you're deep in thought. Yeah, it's um, it's really... Uh, so what hits me hard with it, as we see like the videos and the messages and everything that's happening, Right. And you're talking about, I saw videos of like teenage girls getting paraded through the streets, beat up, you know, bloodied faces. See videos and pictures of, you know, Jewish babies being like beheaded and like found. And so there's, there's all this stuff in man and, and who knows what propag what's, who knows what's real and what's not. Um, I don't think that it's, I don't think that it's made up out of fresh air. I, you know, I, I, I think that something really horrible has happened. I think it's been happening for a long time. And, um, but I also know that not everything that we see is real, but let's say like half of what we see is real. Half of what we see is accurate. It's horrific. And it's horrific where like, I mean, we were talking about war with Ukraine a couple of weeks ago and kind of how personally it's like a life is a life. But the way that the U.S. fights their, like, should we, we're saying the U.S. should fight their wars by, like, someone else's life instead of ours, right? Like, so a life is a life, but the way wars are fought is horrific. And then you think of, like, we hear the stories of, like, kidnappings that happen between Russia and Ukraine. You know, I used to go to Haiti a lot. And um, one of the reasons we stopped going is for the first time ever, they started actually, like, kidnapping missionaries and little kids and and things like that. And so... Man, war is horrible and war is bad, but there is some weird belief that I have of like men shooting men, knowing that they agreed to it, knowing what they signed up for is like this respectful way to fight a war. If that even exists, acknowledging that like that's, I was never in the military. 
So it's probably even stupid to say, but there's also this version of war that I go, uh, I don't know, killing an infant, not okay on, in my book, you know, beheading, not okay. Um, you know, dragging, uh, girls through the streets, not okay. Shutting off water, not okay. And then I was also thinking like, what would you do if your daughter was beat up, kidnapped and getting dragged through the streets? What would you do if a family member was getting raped and they live streamed it on Facebook using their phone? Like what wouldn't you do to retaliate? Right. The fact that nukes just aren't done. The fact that people aren't nuking people is crazy because I would have no like if it hit if it hit me closer, I would have no way to hold back my rage. And I think the worst part of what's now happening over there is this like now it's just plain rage and hate. Man, like I don't I don't like I don't care much about what caused the beginning of their conflicts. I don't I don't know enough to to I don't know enough to actually have possible probable opinions on that. But what I do know is like I'm not okay with uh babies getting killed. I'm not okay with girls getting dragged through the streets. I'm not okay with terrorism acts and I think there's a big difference between acts of terror and acts of war. Again, and that could be stupid, but I think there's a big difference to that. And then this other question I have that's maybe that I'm asking myself about it too is like, so what is the role of the U.S. and other countries in this? Like there's been times in the world where we saw genocide happening in Rwanda and things like that. And it was like, do we show up? Do we not? Do we intervene or do we kind of watch? Like I remember when the U.N. was there as peacemakers watching genocide happen, not stopping genocide. And so it adds that extra question of like, man, horrific stuff happens. And then what's everybody else's part? Like the, yeah. so I've seen a lot of posts about like, hey, honor what's going on. Or, but now there's like a warship going out there. So it's hard, man. All I can acknowledge is I feel so much sickness and sadness and pain for so many people. And, and now all bets are off on either side. It doesn't matter who's right or who's wrong. You start beheading little kids then we're just lucky they're not nuking each other because there's just a significant amount of hatred. And I'm not okay with terrorism no matter what. I'm not okay with like, I'm not okay with kidnapping no matter what. I can't think of a more like horrific big fear I have in my life than that. So, um, so that's, that's my take on it. Uh, my first take. It's pretty, pretty terrible. I mean, when I, it, it feels really heavy, right? For anybody that has a heart and actually cares about humanity, it's heavy. And so I think, you know, my heart goes out to all the good and innocent people around the world, you know, of every faith, of every nationality that are caught in the crosshairs of political agendas, religious agendas, because, you know, I've, I've tried to, like you, Aaron, take a step back and go, like, my, my emotions and my rage is, is driving me to want to take a side. But when I think about it, and you know, Jesse Itzler put out a post yesterday that just resonated with me in a really big way. And I'll pull it up. But essentially, it was this isn't about choosing a side because it was crazy to me to go on social media and see around the world, Palestinian protesters on one side and free Palestine and then Israeli protesters, right, on, on the other side of the street, and how much hatred they had for one another, and, and how it was this choosing of sides. 
And I love what Jesse Itzler said was, there should be no choosing of sides. This should be anti-Hamas. This should be anti-evil, yeah. right? Like this, this, there's so many innocent people that are getting lumped into, you're either Palestinian supporters or you're Israeli supporters. And I was like, that, missing the that, point. That, that feels like the, the 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 wrong approach here. This is good versus evil. This is humanity versus and light versus darkness, right? And so, as I have really tried to, because I was in kind of the same boat of like, yeah, I've known a little bit about this, and there's been a lot of religious wars, and there's been a lot of wars over land, right? And as I was hearing kind of both sides of the fence and different perspectives and lenses that people are approaching their stance through, I can kind of understand both sides, right? I think there's always going to be enough data or there's always going to be enough emotion or there's going to be people's unique experiences that can support why they're taking a particular stance. But then there's this crossing of the line where it's just pure darkness. It's just pure evil. And I feel like, and this is just my opinion, and I'm just going to say it, that anytime I see true darkness and pure evil, it's really hard to negotiate with evil. And, and me personally, I think evil, if you have the opportunity, you eradicate it. And I don't know what that looks like. I'm not a politician. I know there's a lot of different hooks. There's a lot of different, you know, things that are tying into all of this. And there are political agendas in this. And we could probably talk a little bit about that, right? In terms of there's more and more information coming out around the Israeli government actually knowing about some of this stuff, even though they're saying this was the biggest oversight in national security in over 50 years. There's been Hamas soldiers that have been on video, been captured and said, it was weird. We were at the border and it was like there was nobody there and they invited us in. Is there incentive for there to be another war? Is there other political ties and a global agenda that is being pushed here that is at the expense of these two individual groups? So I think that, you know, that's that's another side discussion, but putting humans and people first, I'm sick over it. It's sad, right? And at the other side of it, you know, when I go, man, when when you can't negotiate with evil, what do you do? Mm. You know, that's where now these moral questions come in and going, man, I'm rooting for somebody else to get killed right now. You know, like, let's just be honest. I'm rooting for Hamas to get completely eradicated. I was rooting for ISIS to get completely eradicated. When I see people doing things like Aaron just mentioned and seeing videos of that, and I've made myself watch these videos, it's sickening. But I also want to be informed. I don't want to be ignorant to these things. And it kind of, Marie and I were talking about it this morning because she's a lot gentler and softer than I am, my wife. And she's like, it reminds me of like, in movies, when you see just pure evil in movies and you see the good person having an opportunity to potentially take out evil and the bad person and they hesitate, that's usually in the movie where they get they get in trouble themselves, right? The evil finds a way to persevere and push through when humanity and morality kicks in and we hesitate and we go, oh, I don't want to do this. Is this the right thing? 
And yet then maybe that person dies or many more people die because they don't take that stance against evil. And so it feels like a lose-lose around, uh, you know, across yeah. the board, in my opinion. And it's going to be very interesting to see how all this plays out. You know, I know China is very happy about this. It feels like there's a division of our military right now, a division of our resources, a division of our morality, a division of our it just so many things. And and it and it makes me sad, right? Because I think, you know, at the end of the day, when when fear starts to drive decision making and and hope starts to diminish as a result of that, that's when things get a lot darker. And and I think it's gonna get worse before it gets better. But I, I said this in a post the other day and I'll say it again. You know, when leadership is weak, that's when evil, that's when terrorists, that's when people, bad people get emboldened to do things. And I think that however you feel about our administration, we have a very weak administration. We've shown that on a global stage. That was going to be another kind of point. Time and time again. No wars under Trump. Right. And, and whether you hate orange man, mean tweets, whatever you want to say, you know, we, the data is the data. The history is the history. Um, and I think now more than ever, we just really, really need, and whether that's in politics, whether that's in your business, whether that's in your family, whether that's in your marriage, we need leaders to step up and lead and have that start to compound in the right direction because it's been compounding in the wrong direction for quite some time. And I think the results of what we're seeing in the world right now is a reflection of that. It's it's really interesting. I, I think I brought this up on a previous episode, but there's a book called The Fourth Turning um, that was written, I don't know, 10 or 12 years ago. And they just wrote an updated uh, book. It's called The Fourth Turning is Here. And what's interesting about this book is it goes back over over time and it just, it kind of shows these seasons and the amounts of time that happened in, in societies. And what's interesting, just bringing this back to us in the US, and then I'll just, you know, everything that you guys have said, I, I kind of agree with. I, I'll I'll, I'll share a couple thoughts on it, but um, the fourth turning is here. The new book is talking about how in the next 10 or 12 years, we're like at this critical point of the fourth turning in the U S where some it, it's, there's kind of like this new era that's going to happen in the next like 10 to 12 years. And unfortunately there's some really challenging times that, that we're probably going to have to go through. Things usually happen that divide, but then force you know, a country to come back together. And the reason why I'm sharing that is like, it's interesting just hearing all of this, because when you think about, you know, Iran and Israel or Hamas and Israel and all of these issues, I mean, these things go back thousands of years. And I don't really, you know, watching it from the outside, I, I'm even thinking of epigenetics. I'm not going to go off on a tangent on this, but if you just go look at epigenetics and the way that like, you know, our genes are from generation to generation, and you really just study this, there's just so much anger and resentment and frustration built in. And when you correlate, you know, what they're going through versus just even realizing how blessed we are to be in the United States of America. And like, you know, you think about the division when we're talking about like orange man and, and even the challenges that are ahead of us in the, you know, the fourth turning is here. When we think of the challenges that divide us as a country, we're not that old as a country. I mean, you think back to the civil war and you look at like, we literally killed each other because half of us wanted to enslave black people and half of us didn't. And we like killed people for those reasons. 
And now to think about it in this day and age, like, I don't, like, we can't even fathom that because of the, the arguments that we have now, the things that piss us off is like, you know, conversations around, <laughs> we edit it from the episode, but like, you know, I identify as a dog or transgender stuff, or we're arguing about all this stuff. But then you think about all these things that are going on that are real deep, like deep, deep rooted thousand year issues. And we're actually just so freaking blessed to, to live where we are. But also at the, you know, at the end of the day, like for us to sit on the outside, I love what you said, Maddie. And I think this is, this is what it comes down to for me. And, and you said this so eloquently, but at the end of the day, whether, you know, the Hatfields are right or the McCoys are right or the North is right or the South is right or Hamas is right or Israel's right, there's freaking good. And then there's pure evil. And at the end of the day, when you look at some of these countries and the way that they treat their people, um, I think that's what we have to really anchor with. I don't know why they're fighting. And yeah, I can go study and research everything else. But the reality is they've been fighting for thousands of years. And they're all crammed into this little, when we're thinking about the, you know, she said this in the intro, but it's like basically like a huge prison. Some of these countries are just huge prisons. The way they treat their people. My wife has said this so many times. She's so fortunate that she wasn't born in some of these other countries because she was, she would definitely be dead because Mm -hmm. she's like a freaking rebel. Like you can't tell her like what to do. She said this so many times. I would, I would have been murdered as a little girl. And so when you just really bring it back to, you know, who's right, what's right. I mean, America does some really evil shit too. Yeah. Um, it's at the end of the day though, like I think it really comes back to that. And the fact that these guys have all been fighting for thousands of years, we're not going to solve this anytime soon. I think Maddie, you said it's going to get worse before it gets better. Um, and on one side, like it really concerns me. And on the other side, there's nothing you can do about it at the end of the day, but like just, try to be a force for good. I think yeah. that's the thing that we all have to keep our head on is like, what can I do on a daily basis to just, you know, try to promote good humanity. And again, we're so freaking blessed because the problems that we think we have in America, we'll probably get into some of them today, you know, real estate and debt and, you know, economic problems. They're paltry compared to what some of these people live through and, and previous generations have lived through. And, and again, I just don't think we're going to ever I don't know how these guys ever get to peace. And the fact that we think we can broker peace, it's not even really about peace. It's keeping them from wiping each other off the face of the planet and the rest of us with them. What's what they're doing. Yeah. And, and at the end of the day, you know, my, my daughter right now is in, uh, she's in, uh, she's in Bosnia right now, which is, you know, that's a long ways. Like we're so in, like we're so in our American mind. I had to actually look when all this started, I'm like, I had to like go look and see how far away from conflict she is. Cause like, you know, to me, Bosnia and, and Israel are right now. They're not, but you know what? She's in like a week or two, she's supposed to go to um, Beirut for a month. And Beirut is like the center of where all these meetings have happened and everything else. And it's like, you know, until it really starts to affect us, we don't really have, and not just this, but anything. We don't really have a dog in the hunt. And again, I, at the end of the day, and I'll, I'll get off my soapbox here, but like, I just don't think, again, from an epigenetic standpoint and the pure hatred that exists, you know, from one uh, ethnic, ethnicity to another or religion to another, it's so deep rooted that I don't, I mean, I don't think that we can even really solve that. And so I think it's just, it's doing as much as we can on a daily basis to just bring good. And really, like you said, Maddie, just, it's, it's pure evil. 
and you can see it from a mile away. In some of these countries, China, Iran, you know, Hamas, the terrorist order, the way they treat their people is the indicator of me of what's right and wrong. I'm not saying we're right. I'm not saying Israel's right. I'm not saying everything's been done perfect. But at the end of the day, I think the indicator is like, when you can see in peacetime, the way you treat your own freaking people, that says a lot about, you know, who's right and who's wrong. It was really interesting to me. Um, I was, I don't, I think it was on Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan had a woman on who was from Palestine. And she was saying, if you're born in Palestine, if you're born Palestinian in that area, you're pretty much born dead. You will either, you will have no freedoms. If you don't align with essentially the, you know, the agenda. And mind you, she said she grew up every day with, them essentially saying death to America. And that was their religion that, you know, and then, and it was death to the Jews. And, and it was really interesting as she went to explain this, she goes, I understand the outrage against Palestinians, but so many people that are born in that area are, are literally born into death in the sense of you have no freedom, you have no autonomy. And you are either going to br- try and break free of that and most likely die, or you're going to be groomed into a suicide bomber that is going to go and carry out some jihadist mission that is of the benefit of you know the agenda. And it was just really, to go back to your point, I woke up this morning and I look out on the golf course. I live on the golf course and I'm looking at this beauty I have the ability to walk to my fridge and get some clean water. I have a, you know, roof over my head. I have a warm toilet seat that I put my butt cheeks on every morning. I got hot water. I can make my daughter's breakfast without worrying about a bomb hitting my house. And I think that there's there's that's real wealth to me. Like that's real wealth is is having that type of freedom. And so it just puts in perspective of we talk about money, we talk about real estate investing, we talk about going and taking over the world. But at the end of the day, it's it's these things that are happening. And it's not just with Israel and Palestine, right? Like you said, there's lots of wars. There's lots of people in the crosshairs of these unfortunate pieces of the world. And so going out, I love what you said, Mike, of, of going out every day. And, and that's why I love being an entrepreneur is because it gives me the ability to go out and be the best beacon of light, not just for myself, my own self-serving interests, right? But to go out and and find how to be the best version of myself, to be a positive person, and and you know that um, that good that we want to see in the world, because there's a lot of darkness around us, and and we are so lucky to be in America as as much as we love to complain about the economy and the politics and the administration. You know, and, and yeah. on that too, I think it's, I think we have to anchor on that too, because when, and again, going back to the fourth turning is here, we are so blessed, but part of it is because of the freedom and the core fabric of, you know, the United States of America. And I'm not saying that we're, you know, that this country is perfect. In fact, I'm thinking about when I coached with Dan Sullivan, he was talking about from strategic coach, he was talking about how the founding fathers, when they were writing the constitution, you know, we have the the preamble in it. And it, it's, it talks about the life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? Well, originally, that was supposed to state life, liberty, and the pursuit of property. One of the foundational principles of America, even from a real estate perspective, is that we have the right to property and ownership, right? Yep. This is one of the core foundational principles of our country that a lot of people don't have. 
And in the original, when they were talking about this, they debated this for days because life, liberty, and the pursuit of property, that meant that every single person in America had the right to property, to own their own property. And the fact that they had slaves, the founding fathers had slaves, they, they scratched it and they said life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Because if they would have guaranteed every American the right to property, then slavery would have been illegal. And it's interesting just even from the pure fabric of like freedom and ownership and the way that our property rights are and everything else. And the reason why I'm saying this is if we're not careful, back to the fourth turning and, and seeing you know, even a nation divided, if we're not careful and we don't fight our own battle here in the U.S., I mean, we talk about getting involved all over the world and everything else, but there's an onslaught of freedom against freedom in our own country. And if we're not careful, we're going to wake up in 30, 40, 50 years from now and we could be a complete, we're not that old. Mm-hmm. We could be a completely different country and our constitution's under attack, our freedom's under attack, freedom of speech is under attack. And I just wonder sometimes too, I think we should mind our own business because we have a lot of problems at home. And if it isn't about, you know, again, I don't think we're ever going to see peace across you know, the world. If it's about keeping people from blowing each other up, fine, maybe we should put our foot into it. But the reality is we should be focused on keeping our own freedoms in our own country because we're on a slippery slope. And if we're not careful, we could very easily end up being, you know, a country that doesn't have, I mean, even just the right to bear arms. It's like, it's really funny as you say that, Mike, just, and just that whole concept of where we go back and forth on, like, should the U S intervene in other places or not? And I think most of us would say like, no, it's none of our business. But also there are certain administrations that when they rule with the high fist, shit doesn't happen in other places either. So there's also this way that we can like intervene across the world and be peacemakers across the world without actually like losing troops or going out there. So it's just, it's, just by being so strong. Yeah. It's like a wild, it's, it, it's, it's that, it's that wild process too of like, no, we don't want to, we don't want Americans to die, but we don't want people to die. And. But I, I thought it was interesting, just as, as you said that, Mike. I just it, that's like also reiterating, though. Like, no, the whether you like Trump or not, when he was president, he was you know he ruled people. He told people, if you do this, we're coming, and this is what you're doing, and they believed him, and people didn't fight with each other. One of the and things the, I'm one of the things I'm really curious about is like who is benefiting from all this terror. It's a good there, question. Definitely ask, some, right? right. So there's definitely this terrorist component to it, but the fact that the narrative has so quickly become Jerusalem versus Israel rather than Israel versus Hamas, Jerusalem versus Hamas. It's quite interesting to me. If you look at, and I was pulling up a map earlier, if you look at a map, I'm going to pull up the map of this region. The geography tells a lot. So you have Israel here. Can you guys see my map here? You have Israel here. And for the last like 200 years, this little piece of land has been fighting with this entire region of the world. So this, this little region that is Jewish is fighting with all of this Muslim territory, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, Bahrain, Kuwait, Iraq, Iran, Syria, Lebanon, Turkey. It's literally like in the middle of this. It's the epicenter. And then when you zoom into Israel, Israel has split between the West Bank and Gaza, where all the Palestinians live. And that's what we're talking about in terms of uh, this open-air prison. They can't leave those places. Those are, those are like basically lockdowns. 
Um, and you have this incredibly dense, and I want to zoom in here just to give people perspective. You have this incredibly dense piece of land. Look at how dense it is. And there's this gate <laughs> that keeps these people here. And so there's somebody that's benefiting from literally eradicating this piece off of the planet. And what hurts, what hurts me when I watch these videos is, um, I think that Muchu said this earlier is I think the days of fighting battles on battlefields is gone. I think that today's modern day wars are going to be just people blowing up cities and the people that suffer the most are citizens, right? When, when you attack something in America, we go far away and we blow shit up. Somebody here terrorized something and then the retaliation is blowing these cities, these buildings where people live, their hospitals, their schools, their shelters. And I, I just, from a human side, I just, it's really hard for me to fathom the lifestyle, the living, the, the fear, the scarcity of everyday life. Like where, where do these people go? And they can't leave. Yeah. Where do they go? Your whole city is blowing up and you can't leave. So it's just so sad. But I guess my point is, is who's benefiting from all this? Like who is behind the scenes pushing these buttons? And the reason I bring this up is because in the last decade, um, and there's there's a lot of data to prove this, but Israel has been doing more and better at creating relationships with all of these countries in a way that it's never done in 100 years. So Israelis freely can travel to Saudi Arabia. That was unheard of 10 years ago, right? And uh, what's his name? MBS was just on the verge of creating an agreement with the U.S. about all, you know, a relationship between the U.S. and and Israel and Saudi Arabia and all and this this unilateral sort of agreement to help Saudi Arabia grow and build this international relationship with the world. And that now is off the table. Mm -hmm. So who is benefiting from progress being made? Um, and so it's just fascinating. It, my heart goes out to these people. I just, I'm putting myself in the shoes of these people that are living there. And it just, it makes me so sad. So I think Maddie, you said it, what can we do? You know, how can we show up? I think it's the first conflict where you're seeing in a very short amount of time, people don't know what side to take because there is no good side. Yeah. It's not I about gotta, taking. Uh, I, I got to jump. Are, I didn't mean to. Are we going to lose you, Mikey? Oh. Yeah, I got to go. I got I to gotta golf trip with my Wellspring pod, so I got to go golfing. Well, you, brother, dropped, you, brought, you dropped some nuggets, Mike. Brought some fire. So we'll, we'll see let you. Yeah, Mike. We'll see you, Mikey. Mike has you. more important things to do, <laughs> listeners, than be here hanging out with us. <laughs> but really, Mike wasn't expected to be here, so he surprised us with his beautiful face, and we all cheered uh, when he joined on the call. Uh, because we thought it was just going to be, you know, the three oh, of us. Sorry, I can, stop. I can stop sharing. I didn't realize I was still sharing. But yeah, that's no. that's kind of where my head's at. I think, you know, it, it's really interesting to watch social media blow up. All these very prominent people. Um, when when Ukraine happened, it was like if you didn't have a Ukraine flag on your icon or your email, you were somehow judged. And it's really interesting and fascinating that within three to five days, clearly there's damage, harm death and you're not seeing that sort of same response you're not yeah. seeing that same like i stand with israel or i stand with like people 
thought leaders are conflicted about this. You're seeing yeah. presidential candidates. You're seeing presidential candidates not address this yet. And people are asking. There's like Jewish people on my feed that are saying, look, a bunch of Jewish kids got killed. Like, do, like speak out because, and, and I think they're offended. People are offended that, you know, that there was this for Ukraine or this for Black Lives Matter or this for other things. And so many people are quite, I think, I think the big part of it is we don't actually know what we're talking about in this, right? Like it is still such a foreign thing for us for why people are fighting. We could research it for a while and not be able to comprehend what it's like to grow up in a open air prison and we could, and what you, what you, right. what you would do for your family to fight for freedom and what you would totally. do for your family if a terrorist attacked them and where those lines are. So it's, I, that's my biggest summary of my feelings today too, is it's a very complicated thing, but very life is precious yeah. and it is sad to see what people will do for their family or for hate. And then when it turns to hate, all bets are off. And, uh, there, there's conflicts happening all around the world right. and with, without strong say. leadership, is this just the second domino? Or are there a few more that are going to fall that are just giving us reasons to create more conflict globally, pulling right. us yeah. into sh- more and more shit, which makes us is even China more China us to see what our reaction would be if they do something totally, with Hong Kong, right? you know? A lot of people are saying this is a precursor to World War III. I mean, you know, China... It, and I don't know if anybody follows Epoch Times, but you know they they do a pretty good job of reporting as um, unbiasedly as possible. And they released a video recently around Xi Jinping, essentially saying that he exactly wanted this probably four months ago, like at the beginning of summer. So, th- th- and th- these are things that, of course, the media is not talking about, right? But they're, oh, they're, it, when, so when you, when you ask the question, Ashish, of like, who benefits from this, right? And, and why is this happening? And, and what do they want to continue to happen? I mean, at the end of the day, when you think about America being the global police and the world power, on the stage that we've been on for so long and intertwined into, you know, global politics and global commerce and economics, you got to be honest about it that when you're when you're in first place, you know, whether you have quote unquote allies or obviously many enemies, people want to shoot arrows at who's in first place. And there are many people that want to see the downfall of America. That's just a reality. Now, we've done a good job of, you know, positioning ourselves and building moats around things that we need to build moats around, you know, to protect and insulate our positions on a global scale. But at the end of the day, you got to know and imagine that there are going to be many countries and many people that would love to see the division of America or anything at all that could potentially hurt and or exploit and or expose the position that America is in and our potential downfall as a result of that. So yeah, we're no, not I think conspiracy you're... theorists, I promise, but I am going to do it, <laughs> right. but I am going to do a September 11th poll before the end of the podcast. The, somebody has sent me this. It just says killing innocent Palestinians is horrific. Killing innocent Israelis is horrific. That's right? it. If, Mike like, drop. That's it. Like I can, I, I, I know I can plant my flag with that. I don't yeah, know too. much about much with what's going on. That's how I, regardless feel. of the reason, like 
killing innocents is horrific. And that's, I don't know enough about the rest. The, the important thing I think I want to get out of this. And I think I hope that the listener gets out of this is, is to really think about who is it that we're listening to and why is what's happening around us happening? So like who's benefiting from this? Um, who is incentivized to create this chaos and just to hold those people accountable and to just not fall into these, these traps. Um, I think that's what I'm trying to find in, in all the chaos of this. Yeah. Just, just to piggyback on that, I think um, it's so important. And I think COVID and the pandemic and how things played out based on what people said and were kind of fed and the propaganda and then the results of how it played out really discredited a lot of the belief systems and the ecosystems and the establishments that many people had put so much trust in for so long and taken it yeah. at face value to this great awakening of going, man, maybe what I believe to be true or what I thought was true is no longer actually true. I think my biggest takeaway going back to 2020 to today is being a critical thinker and yep. and 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 leaning in and doing your research and having the tough conversations doing it respectfully being open minded to the fact that i remember i was in a, a mastermind a long time ago and there's one person that said something that has really resonated and stuck with me in a lot of what i've um carried forward in my career and in my relationships and just what i believe to be true and he had basically said that the most impactful leaders are the ones who are steadfast in their belief system, but open-minded enough to hear opposition and understand that their truth may not actually be truth because it will either, through those dialogues and conversations, strengthen your stance and your position, or by hearing something different, oppositional, out of alignment with what you believe, it will expose you to something new that might serve you at a higher level. And so I try and apply that in what I do on a daily basis, whether it's really in any category of life, business, wealth, family, friends, health, all of that, right? And yep. I think it's important to, you know, take a stance and be steadfast in what you believe in, but at the same time, still be open-minded enough to know that your thoughts and your truth can evolve and, and it can be something different than what you believe it to be. And those are the people that I think can connect and influence and make impact at the highest of levels that some can't. And, you know, when you think about the world that we live in today, and we're talking, you know, I've heard this statement a couple of times on today's show, we're talking in thousands of years. But when you think about, you know, planet Earth, and, you know, first scientists said it was billions of it's years, now tens of billions of years, we are so fucking insignificant. It's unbelievable. Yeah. The power in today's world is really to be able to change your mind. Mm. I want to be able to be open-minded enough for somebody to change my mind. And if I'm, if I'm stuck with this limiting belief, I'll call it, I think I'm the only one that's suffering. And so I just wonder how much of the world is suffering in whatever suffering they're in because they're not willing to be open to an, a different alternative. And, and what am I holding on to? The ability yeah. to change your mind is like, is pure wisdom and probably one of the most important life skills. And that's also what we saw out of COVID is people that like 
had hung on to a belief on either side for so long that regardless of what when it that started changing or regardless of when it became like so obvious that it was no longer that where they still just had to hold on because they were committed to this idea of like oh my gosh i said it was okay for so long i can't say i was well it becomes your identity i think that's an identity it becomes yeah so like Yeah. yeah so the ability to change your mind even if something had become your identity is what is the difference between I think winners and losers and people are successful and not. Okay. Let's, let's pivot into another topic. Um, uh, did we land on the moon? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) No, so so that that, there's, I definitely wanted to talk about Israel and Palestine today. I hope, I hope listeners can shoot in some questions. If you have anything else on that topic that you'd love us to give your insight on, but it's something we've, we wanted to try to do it justice to just talk about it and give it some airtime um, and to really take it 180 degrees. Last time we talked about some deal flow, creative financing, um, you know, in the next couple of years, there's about $3 trillion of commercial real estate that the financing is going to come due. Interest rates are, I think, Fed funds rate right now as of September is five and a third, 5.33%. Yep. So interest rates are higher. Um, significantly higher than they were just 18 months ago, 12 months ago. So there's a lot of pain that's coming um, from a conventional acquisition standpoint. It doesn't matter what category you're in. I think all these guys are in different categories. So you'll hear a little bit of everything right now is it's becoming more and more challenging for banks to get deals done, uh, to get conventional financing done. Uh, expenses are much higher, incomes are much lower in some categories. So it's just becoming more challenging. And so the creative financing world is really where deals are going to get done. And you have subject matter experts here in Mooch and Maddie and even Mike um, that are really the experts of this. So this is a topic I wanted to scratch out and see um, you know, what deals are getting done right now, guys. What are the creative financing things that you are doing um, maybe even give us some another other examples of lenses in which to look at deals, um, and just maybe more economically, what are you seeing in terms of the financing landscape? Uh, what are banks saying? And let's try to stay sort of not so um, not so long term. Let's try to say like what is going to really get done in the next three to six months. Let's try to have that framework, and then. Um, Mooch, maybe the trendsetter can see if you think there's something longer term we really need to pay attention to. But let's kind of say like, what's going to help me get deals done? What should what are the lenses I should be looking through right now? Uh, Mooch, you want to go first? Um, sure, I can do it, it, the and, and yeah, I probably do have a, a, a short little topic once we get over this one that I think maybe uh, leads together with it. Um, so seller financing is is a really so I just hosted my inner circle event right. And some of the guys there that are crushing it are guys that have become an expert in seller financing. Um, And the whole concept is if you want to be an investor right now, it's really hard to make something cash flow when rents might have gone up 5% over the last year in some markets. In most markets, they're down 5%. But your actual mortgage, your actual loan payment has gone up 20, 30, 40, 50% on these things. And so it's nearly impossible to buy a deal with traditional debt, which is going to be some, we just refied a $20 million pool at like seven and a quarter, mm. seven and a quarter, $20 million loan at seven and a quarter, man, like the, Work if we hadn't heart. bought those things, 
like a gazillion years ago. Like yeah. we'd like we'd be screwed, but I couldn't buy I could not buy a property today anywhere I'm looking and pay seven and a quarter in cash flow. That strategy is gone for a while. And so there's still it doesn't mean you shouldn't buy real estate, but it's like it it's it's not it's gonna have to be a different scenario than every guru has been teaching the last five years and everybody's been doing. So the seller financing concept is just this idea of I had somebody reach out to me this week. They have no money. They have no money on their credit cards. They asked me to loan them money for like gas and food. They have about $200,000 in equity on their house, right? But they have no money. They can't pay their bills. They're not going to be able to pay their mortgage. And so they have a 4% interest rate on their house. And so, and if you're doing like, I guess, simple math, right? Like a $300,000 loan, you know, 4% interest rate. Your monthly payments like twelve hundred to fourteen hundred dollars a month, like even amortized at thirty years, something like that. So it's like twelve hundred to fourteen hundred dollars a month for a three hundred thousand dollar loan. But then as it jumps up, right to new higher rates, seven and a quarter, seven and a half. Now that three hundred thousand dollar house is twenty three hundred a month, twenty four hundred a month. If you were going to buy the house today. So rents haven't gone from 1400 to 1600 So there's this opportunity with people like that that say, like, one, they could sell their house and cash out, but someone isn't going to be able to buy it and put a renter in it and have it cash flow. Mm-hmm. Even if I bought it for what, the, for like, even if they just gave it to me, they didn't give me any of the equity, right? It's worth 500 They have a loan of 300000 I can't buy it for 500000 and cash flow because my loan, my loan will be 400000 times seven. So how do you win with people like that? It's going to somebody like that and going, look, I will give you $50,000 and then you're going to sign your $300,000 loan over to me or you're going to sign it. I'm just going to, essentially, I'm just going to start paying that off instead. You're going to give me the house. And so I keep that $1,400 a month payment instead because now it works and now it can cash flow. Um, so that's the big opportunity. And that's a subject to, for those that don't know what that is, right? Yeah, that's a, exactly. That, that's so that, buying that, a house subject to the existing mortgage staying in place. And those are, those deals are out there right now. I'm, I'm talking with a handful of people. I bought one last year just like that. And that is a creative way, right? Of still making it a win for them. Their alternative, their situation isn't going to get any better. They need access to equity. You're buying, right? What are you buying, Maddie? The, you're just buying the equity? What what is the fifty thousand? Where did you come up with fifty grand? Is the equity portion? That, that's that's just theoretically right. A, a a down payment and some good faith, some some goodwill. That so they Aaron walk. Is so the person giving get. you the house walks away with something. So they have some incentive to do it. Right, right. So and and I've done subject twos where, you know, they're I, I gave them five thousand bucks. Yep. You know, and and not and and it was still a win for them, right? So it, it really depends on each individual situation. You don't want to be taking advantage of people's situations and being that you know unethical investor that's preying on individuals. But that being said, there are situations where you can get into certain properties without having to go qualify with the bank, right? And you don't have to go and put a ton of money down. And they may have good debt sitting on that property. And I'm, you know, negotiating on one right now where it's essentially exactly that. They have a 4.5% mortgage. They 
need to essentially get out of the property. They want some money. So I'm, I'm going to be coming to the table with, you know, a couple hundred thousand. It's a larger commercial building, but I'll be, I'll be capturing. I'm basically that down payment that I'm getting the property for is a major discount of the equity that they would probably walk with if they decided to go in a more traditional route, which they don't have the luxury of doing. And I'm going to leave their existing mortgage in place. So I'm purchasing the property. I'm going to own it subject to their existing mortgage staying in place. So I don't have to go to the bank. I don't have to ask them for a 7 or 8% interest rate on whatever the difference is of the mortgage that you know I would have to bring to the table for the purchase price. And those are really great creative deals and structures that can be made right now. And I think for a lot of people that are just pausing and sitting on the sidelines, this is where I'm actually going on the offensive. Well, this Maddie, is where- Maddie, what is, what is, why are people staying on the offensive? And the second question is in the scenario you just said is why should a seller be interested in that? Besides the math, like why, why, what can you say to me as a seller to convince me of that? Well, it depends on their situation, right? I would say when somebody's motivation to sell meets my price or term structure, that's where we can create a win-win, right? Mm-hmm. Because some people say, oh, you're taking advantage of somebody's situation. Well, this is what I can do and what I feel comfortable of the risk that I'm willing to take. And based on their situation and what they're ultimately trying to accomplish, can we find a meeting of the minds where what they're trying to accomplish and that outcome can be completed by what I'm willing to bring to the table? So Mm -hmm. it's hard to give a cookie cutter, one size fits all situation because everybody thinks it's always about money, right? And it's not always about money. And I know, Mooch, you've talked to thousands of sellers and all of the transactions that you've been involved in, right? And I've been in hundreds of transactions myself. And while I usually try and present people with different scenarios and options that they can say, hey, you might make more money here, but here's what that process is going to look like. And here's what that timeline is going to look like. Or there's this option, you're going to make less money but maybe here's what that timeline and what that outcome looks like. And then you give people the options so you're not just steering them in one direction or another. And you say, here's what I can do. These are the options that I can present you with. Which one makes the most sense for you? And so to answer your question, even though it's indirectly answering it, it's hard to say what I say to one particular person because it's really based on each individual's scenario and what their situation is and what they're up against. What M- Mooch? I have uh, Mooch. We can't hear you, brother. I thought you could read lips. The um, the yeah, it's a lot of it is asking like what they need. It's like so much of the conversation when you get to start it with whatever lead source you're using and how you're reaching out to them is just going like, hey, what are you looking for? Because sometimes people are so overwhelmed with the payment that they're like, I'll give you the house to avoid foreclosure, so I don't have to do the payment anymore because they're far behind. And then others are like, I'll give you the house, but I really need enough money to like move to uh, Idaho where I have a job lined up or I have family. And then others are like, well, I'll sign it over to you, but I know I have a few hundred thousand dollars in equity. I could file bankruptcy. I could then list it on the market. It would take me nine months to get that, but I would take a hundred thousand dollars today. So a lot of people have their different scenarios. So it's like why, why a seller would do it 
is because the market's slower right now and they have some motivation where they need money now instead of later and the property isn't serving them the way that it used to either as an investment or as a house or whatever they just it's not doing what it was supposed to do and then the reason a buyer would do it uh, the reason maddie would buy one or i would buy one is for cash flow purposes if you're buying stuff for like future value sometimes it's a little bit harder because like you could buy i could actually buy something worth three hundred thousand dollars today and take over a three hundred thousand dollar note or even yep. I could take over a $350,000 note on a $300,000 valued house. If it has a 3% interest rate on it, right. I, yeah. can't, I can't ever really sell that house, right? But if I gave them a thousand bucks or let's say 10,000 bucks to move away and there's a 3% loan on it, I can cash flow a thousand bucks a month on my investment when I go to rent it. So it's just a different form of real estate. And when real estate transactions have come to a halt, people being creative are going to find the option. The trap that can happen, though, is like somebody might pay $600,000 for a $300,000 house because it has a 3% rate. And there are some scoundrels the out trap. there that have done yeah. that as a business plan. Do you feel like yeah. the pressures are going to mount where this is going to be more and more of the market in the next three yeah. to six months? Absolutely. And then, And then from a... From a broker standpoint, we're talking about investors and sellers, but what role does the broker have? Um, a lot of the things that I'm looking at right now from that come to me through brokers, let's say, are still unreasonably low from a cap rate perspective and everything is conveniently off market. And I was talking to one of my friends, a friend of mine who was like, of course, all the brokers benefit. And we're talking about commercial, by the way, not, not single family. Um, but uh, of course, the brokers benefit by keeping it off market at low cap rates because the moment that the entire broker market floods floods the systems and MLS with all these properties, uh, you know, cap rates are going to increase, lowering prices. So, what role do brokers have? And perhaps even Mooch, what advice do you have for brokers? <laughs> the I hear quick search. Mooch is thoughts around brokers and agents. Because your I listener base is a lot of brokers, but I, I've got yeah, Maddie, you and I I'm, can I'm, give I'm, our feedback. I'm, I'm curious <laughs> to hear Mooch's, Mooch's politically correct to the <laughs> response here. No, or Mooch, not. no politically correct bullshit. I don't care about who your listener base is. Tell them straight. Dude, what's, my listener what? base is 100,000 real estate agents and they know that I love them, but they also know <laughs> there's a big difference between good agents and bad agents. And some people make their money as flat rate agents because they're going to transact and others are going to argue commissions and others are going to add value and others are going to make a ton of money without, you know, I've seen plenty of examples where brokers earned their money and plenty of examples where they didn't. But what advice a, do you have, Mooch? What advice so do you advice have? Advice right me? now. So with a crazy thing, I don't know if I said it on this podcast last week or not, but I just did a search that said homes for sale with assumable loans in Austin. Yeah, you had told us about this. Yes. Right? So I can actually click this website though. And now it says, here's a list of properties in Austin. There are a hundred of them that have assumable loans on them, right? That are like, hey, here's a $625,000 house. It's on MLS. And you can like go through them to see how much the loan is. Uh, so it says assumable 3.125% for qualified buyers, right? So buyer, so um, the broker is going to make a commission. So what I would do as a broker right now is I would talk to people about listings, teach them about assumable loans. I would market my listings as being assumable loans. 
Because if I'm going to buy a house in that neighborhood, a $625,000 house, I am absolutely going to buy the one with a 3.125% loan instead mm-hmm. of a seven, because the payment is going to be more than double, mm-hmm. right? It's the More than double as they're changing uh, that around. So that's what I would do as a broker and an agent. I would try to you know, communicate with people what's an assumable loan. I would try to search the stuff that's out there. I'd probably come up with a campaign plan for houses that have been on the market for a while or stuff that just goes expired and say, hey, that one just went expired. You know, what sort of a loan do you have in place? The, you know, it might be tough to, you know, that may be a way way that you can walk away with close to your number if you're willing Mm -hmm. to do that. And whereas, and a lot of people selling today, they're not going to go get a mortgage next week. Yep. Um, Yeah. Here's an interesting thing too. So a lot of the guys in my inner circle were talking about this and people said, well, when I go to buy my second house, I won't be able to because I already have this loan in place, right? And they said what they're doing is they're like signing a lease with the people before they buy it. Essentially, they're somehow having this like legal lease in place because if I have a house right now and I put a renter in my personal house, I can go buy another primary. They'll let me go buy another primary if they can show that a renter is paying my house off here. Yeah. So the guys are talking to the sellers about that when the sellers are like, I don't want to do that because I'm not going to be able to buy a second house. You're like, look, we will get to act as the property manager. We're actually renting it out. We've got a lease in place. When you're ready to get your other loan, we'll provide it to your lender that we, that that house is getting, uh, is your past house is getting rented. That rent is paying the mortgage. Mm, and I thought that was, that was brilliant. That blew mm. my mind as a tactic of when people are worried about, it. they're like, no, you can still get a loan even if we never pay this one off. And here's why. Mm, I love that. Maddie. Hmm. I mean, I, I, I got my start as a realtor. Um, and I'm curious, Mooch, you might know the, the statistics on a little bit better around realtors and brokers, and you can lump in lenders in there as well. But I think it's like the top 5% do 80 to 85% of the overall business, right? Something along those lines. Is that relatively accurate? Totally. Yeah. There's a, a very low percentage do most of the revenue, most of the business. So I do believe that there is a place and there is value in those particular people. But for the most part, most are stupid. They are self-serving and they get in the way and they make, they, they, they make the goal of what the, the, the buyer and the seller are actually trying to accomplish way more difficult and often are the reasons why those goals don't get accomplished. So I'll start with that. I personally have been able to successfully do more deals now where I was able to help the seller that I bought it from or I was able to accomplish the sale of a property of mine and get a great buyer what they wanted without brokers and real estate agents involved. So me personally, I'm not a big fan of them just from the perspective of most of them have commission breadth. They actually don't understand the economics and the skills and what actually goes into being an investor and and building wealth and achieving an investment outcome that is a win for everybody. And so I find it really interesting that there are, you know, so many brokers that find themselves so relevant and so important when they don't own any real estate investments 
They don't understand what a cap rate is. And when I was working with a, a sovereign wealth fund and a private equity group, I thought just because I controlled the deal that I was so important. And when I had to actually present the deal to the committee, and if you don't know what a committee is, that's, uh, of, you know, banks have committees, sovereign funds have committees, wealth uh, managers and, you know, family offices, they have committees that essentially, right, they're looking at the numbers and whether or not the numbers actually align with their investment thesis and the mission that that investment group is there to serve. And so when I had to present a deal to an investment committee, and I didn't truly understand, and I felt like, hey, I'm pretty savvy. I understand investing at a high level for the most part. It really humbled me to really understand the economics of a deal and the levers of a deal and the all the moving pieces of what a real investment is encompassing of and the risks that are associated with that. And they've always said something to me. Uh, they said something to me that really stuck out to me, which was, unless you're truly in the deal, you don't care about the deal because you just care about your fee. And so I thought that was really interesting, right? When I think about most people that are in deals and trying to broker deals, they are not in the deal and they will do anything and say anything just to get the deal done for who? Not for their seller, not for their buyer, but because of what's behind that, which is the commission check that they're going to get. I think that right now where I'm seeing the most opportunity at is, you know, what was a very saturated market, direct market of marketing. Um, my mailers, I'm getting hits again, and I'm having a lot more conversations with sellers, and I'm having a lot more conversations with sellers that are open to creative financing, understanding the landscape of, you know, what's going on with rates, what's going on with lending. Um, and I'm also starting to see more and more sellers get more realistic on what pricing is. If you think your assets are worth what they were 12 or 18 months ago, you are grossly mistaken. I have talked with many funds, many different groups that have assets and also on my own stuff that has been appraised through different scenarios. And most assets are down at a minimum of 20 to 25%. And mm -hmm. Luch, you might be able to give your thoughts on that. But um, I had a couple just yesterday, was talking with a, a group. They've got about a $250 million portfolio. They had the portfolio reappraised and it came in at $160 million. There was another guy that builds multifamily, uh, GoBundance dude, um, eight months or nine months ago. Um, they had it appraised. It was a $54 million asset. They just got the appraisal back yesterday on reappraising it at $44 million. Yeah. So again, I think this, as dust has settled, as a lot of the data is continuing to trickle in, because again, real estate and really economic data as a whole is we get leading actions, right? The Fed does this, right? Policy does this, and then lagging data starts to trickle in. And that's how we start to formulate decisions and what we decide to do next as a result of that. And so I think we're going to see more and more lagging data because again, the last hike was only, you know, 30, 45 days ago. So that's going to take some time to settle into the market. We're seeing unemployment start to tick up a little bit. That's going to start to trickle out 
over the next few months and going forward. We're starting to see mortgages come due in the commercial space that the numbers don't make sense on anymore. That data is going to start to trickle out and decisions are going to, hard decisions are going to have to be made for people who have investments. And so Mm -hmm. I think that we're going to see some massive opportunity. Yeah. In the short term, three to six months, I do think there's going to be some opportunities. I think this is the seller, you know, season of seller finance, but I think we're going to start to see that distress and that turmoil and some of those tough decisions and opportunities as a result of it mount and get bigger and bigger and bigger heading into 2024 and 2025. So my only point to this is if you're somebody that really is looking to take opportunity and time in this next season to the next level for you, your wealth building, your portfolio, your investments, this could be a life-changing season for many people if they lean in and they do the right things and they start digging the well before they actually want to scoop the water. Now is the time to be proactive versus reactive, whether you're trying to protect your assets and or stack assets. And I'm really excited. I'm going to be honest. I haven't seen my pipeline have this much momentum in five, six years. So I am very excited about what's to come. Um, but I do think now more than ever, right, it's important to listen to, you know, podcasts like this, to Mooch, to Mike, to Sheesh, you know, to all of us and other great communities that are out there leaning into this season versus allowing fear to have them, you know, sit on the sideline waiting to time the market. That could be the biggest mistake you make. The only thing I'll add to all of that, which I totally agree with all of it, I'd say, um, I mean, in the next three to six months, just sort of prepare, prepare your systems, prepare your funnels, prepare cash, educate yourself, join the right masterminds, listen to the right podcast. That's what I'd be doing in the next three to three months, right? Short term. But I think it's fascinating when we go back to the brokers, mooches there, I feel like there's two things going on. So many brokers now are also investors. And I think that that's a conflict of interest because as an investor, I feel like if I'm, well, two things happen. If a broker who doesn't know me calls me with a amazing deal, I just wonder why are they not calling their key investors? Why are they not giving one of their best investments to That's a client that has supported them for 10 years? Why are they calling some new cold call guy, right? So how good is that investment really? The second question is, is if that deal is so good and you're an investor, why aren't you taking it out? Yes. So if an agent I think comes it's, to you and they're also an investor and they're telling you this is a great deal. That, it's a conflict of interest. And so then, and, and in, with social media and look, I'm going to pick on you for a minute. You guys are all promoting, you're promoting lifestyle and freedom with wealth creation and passive income and all that shit. And, and being on social voices. media, huh? I said, make fun of our voices when you do it. Right, right. So it's just it's just a <laughs> funny dynamic of what's going on, and you know, I I want I I want brokers to to invest in things too, but it's just from an investment standpoint, it is a conflict of interest, and an investor needs to understand that that if you are taking out millions of dollars of deals on your own, and then you're pitching me deals at the same time, I should question. Why are you not taking out the best deals for yourself and then giving me the B's? I don't. Or the A minuses. I, I, I don't agree with that completely. Because one, one, everybody's got a certain buy box criteria. What may be a great deal for Aaron may not fit 
my skill set. It may not fit my team. It may That's not fit true. the suitability to my, to my capital. It may not mm-hmm. fit the amount of energy and effort. And some people might have great triple net deals and they just want to sit back and collect passive income checks. Whereas there may be great value add deals, but you got to get in there and get your sleeves dirty and, you know, roll, True. roll up your, True. you know, your sleeves and get, and, and get after it. Right. So I don't necessarily agree with that because I do think that, um, and, and also just capital, right? Like if I had five great deals and I only had the capital myself to do two of those, well, I'm going to, of course, try that. and pick three of those other good deals as well. So I, I think two things can be true at once. I don't think that blanket statement yep. necessarily applies to everybody. But I will say, I do think you're you're touching on something that is accurate, right? Which is, this is such a great deal. But if it really was that great of a deal, right? And most of the times it's not. They're just trying to sell you, know, sell you the opportunity so they can get that commission check, which is you know back to my original point. Um, that's where I think they don't have the ownership mentality and they don't truly understand what is a good deal and what is a great deal and what is an okay deal and what is a bad deal. They're just trying, they, they just are running the plays. They're doing the X's and O's, but they don't truly understand everything, the time, the preparation, the risk that goes into winning the game. They're just a pawn I mean, on the chess they do, and They're not playing to win they, the chess game. If they do and they're an investor... I would argue that, you know, right now they're not interested in investing. They just need to generate the commission and make the income. And so I it's, get all that. So that's all. Mooch, I'll give you the last word on this and then we'll maybe go to another topic. But I, I really do it because it is it is it's an interesting topic in deal finding and, and enable the ability to find a deal and be creative and get access to the owner if the brokers are involved and how you kind of influence the information flow so yeah I go a picture, I got a a picture of us for yeah, instagram on this okay, part the um you know so the the difference between an agent that knows how to invest and knows how to do assumable <laughs> is going to be the big difference of the agents that succeed or not because there are agents yeah. that know how to find good deals and there are other ones there could be all sorts of reasons why they don't buy Maybe it's because they don't have as much money because they weren't do they were doing forty thousand a month in revenue and now they just need and they were investing thirty thousand and now they just need to make ten thousand bucks a month to just pay their bills and I feel your pain I've never wanted to wholesale deals more than I want to now and I hate that I always want to keep everything but I want to wholesale stuff now because I want more money because I have less money on a month to month basis so I'm changing my whole business plan because I'm feeling super poor right now when Maddie said like what's up like those values. We own like 450 million in real estate. So the, yes, like if we're down 20 or 25%, it's a a very painful, very sad, like I should cry myself to sleep deal. Most people don't feel bad for you when you tell them that. But if we had 95% debt, debt, we would now be underwater, Mm -hmm. right? We could have bought everything really, really good. And that's why lenders will still only let you cash out refi at like 65, 75, 85, even when it's hot markets because this stuff <laughs> happens. And when you're levered, if you've got 500 million in real estate and you're down 20%, that's a hundred million dollar decrease. And if you had, you know, essentially if you had a $400 million loan, if you're 85% levered, you're underwater. So it is a tough market. The other difference of why an agent is bringing you the deal now, Ashish, is they always should have been bringing it to as many people as possible. They should have been bringing it to every person they've ever met every single time, but they didn't have to because the market was easy. 
and we all got to get lazy. And if they were smart, they would have brought it to everybody and found out which one of their clients was willing to pay more to make sure that they got the deal. But we didn't have to. We didn't have to do shit. We didn't even have to, like two years ago, we didn't even have to remodel on time. We could be like, okay, I'll just let it sit vacant for six months and then I'll do a crappy remodel on it. And the longer I wait, the more money it's going to be worth. So like the, the suckier you did two years ago, the more money you made. So everyone looked brilliant because they're like, oh, I suck at remodeling. It took me a year. I just made an extra hundred grand. So right. agents have to work for their money now. Um, I think that's so the, the ones that will be now. left in six months are actually the ones you are want to be willing to talk to because they're going to be people that are so willing to like do the work and push through. So it's yeah, big difference between eight. I use flat rate listing agents when I lift when I list houses. So the I cheer agents on. I teach them how to get deals. I run the real estate rock stars mastermind. Big fan of teaching people how to be the agents that um, overcome the stereotype. Because mm-hmm. I believe the stereotype too. And it happened every time I ever went and raised money with anybody. They were like, well, who's getting this commission on this? Well, my daughter's new boyfriend is an agent. Oh, well, my brother's cousin's roommate's an agent. If I invest <laughs> with you, can they list the properties? Can my yeah, daughter exactly. list the properties? Every conversation of if I loan, if I invest 25 grand with you, can my friend list the property for you? No, but because yeah. everybody does devalue the agent relationship. And if you've done enough transactions, you know, there's a time and a place and and sometimes there's not. So I think that's my last word with it. I've okay, got, I got crazy. Th- oh, before you, before you wrap up on that really fast, I just wanted yeah. to point something out that I think is important for investors, uh, potential investors, future investors, active investors, and just listeners right now. You said something that was really important, right? Which if you were in super high leverage and you were just betting on your equity, because I wrote this, I have it somewhere somewhere in my office and it says equity is tied to ego cash yep. flow is tied to freedom when you're you're depending on where the market's going to go and as real estate investors we're at least my you know theory is i want to have crockpot over microwave mindset crockpot long term microwave quick short term you know in and out right and mm. i think without diversification microwave with diversification, the microwave mindset can still work. Without diversification, the microwave mindset and in investing can be very, very risky. But because Aaron is diversified and he does have his microwave business model of flipping in and out, right, what the market gives you, but he's also got long-term cash flowing assets, you lose a significant portion of your equity. He just said, ah, oh, my ego hurts a little bit, right? My net worth dropped, my portfolio is worth less. But at the end of the day, as long as he's not selling right now and he's holding for the long term and he's in a crockpot mindset and the cash flow still gives him that freedom and that peace of mind to persevere through these downturns, he's going to win no matter what. And the 450 is going to be worth 600 in five or 10 years anyways when the market bounces back. So I think it's just a really important thing to think about if you're an investor, mm-hmm. right, to one, let's always think long term. But two, if you're going to play the short-term game, just understand there's risk going to be associated with that. But equity is often associated with people's egos, right? If you're just playing for equity and you're not playing cash flow, which is ultimately the safety net of freedom, you might put yourself in a bad position. And we're seeing that with a lot of investors right now. The other thing that Aaron has is he has attention. So one thing I've been really studying recently, as an investor and operator, the way that 
so like if you're a real estate agent, real estate investor, it's it's equivalent to like private equity, right? Traditional private equity or venture capital. And the people that we follow, the people that we're listening to, the people that have influence on social media or are on stages at conferences or things like that, they have influence, right? They have they have influence of people's people's um uh, let's say rep, uh, digital reputation. They have digital reputation, and what I'm seeing more and more, not so much in the real estate space, besides maybe you three guys, but really in the private equity venture capital space, is that really out of the money deals go to the people with attention, and the people that are paying par or paying. Small discounts are the traditional companies. So what? Let, let me be specific. So if you look at Alex Ramosi, you look at Cody Sanchez that came mooch your your um, mastermind a few weeks ago. You look at even Gary V. You look at the All In Podcast guys. The reason why they spend time on podcasts and and sh- giving the formulas and talking about what the things they're doing is because they're getting that sort of attention that sellers feel like, okay, I know this buyer. I know what their criteria is. I know what they're looking for. I like them as a buyer. I like them as a partner. Let me go to them. And so they're creating this somewhat organic funnel of private equity that is um, more efficient, less expensive, and almost grassroots in a way that traditional companies, I call them industrial companies, wouldn't normally go through these funnels. There's a, And there's many dozens and dozens of examples of this. I just gave you the top few. So I think it's just what I'm studying is how important it is in today's world to have a digital reputation, a different way of, atta- uh, of attracting attention and building your brand, building... Um, building a thesis or building a, an identity of who you are, what you stand for, what are your values, what is your investment criteria, what do you like in a different way than traditional means with sometimes just having a website and a bunch of money. Because yeah. now money is the cheapest. I wouldn't say it's the cheapest, right? Uh, up to a few years ago, but money was the easy part. If you have good deals, good deal flow, that's the hardest part of the equation. Yeah. Right, money now will always find the best deal, mm-hmm. huh? And then now money is just as hard. Influence yep. is influence and following. And if branding. you have the right deal, Mooch, and you have the right operator, money is not hard. If you have the right deal, and you have the right operator, I don't think the money is hard. In today's market, or just in general? I think in general. I mean, of course, it's situational. Okay, it don't is get me harder wrong. today. It is. It is absolutely. Is it harder but, to get the money or harder to get a better deal? Both. Both. Okay. All right. I'm done with my soapbox. Go. Yeah. It was great <laughs> soapbox stuff. I mean, you're, you're spot on about influence being important. <laughs> like, I don't know how to put the net worth on Cody's reach or Alex's reach. Sure. But Ryan Pineda's event that I was just at, like, there's a, and there's significant value in, in what they do and what they touch. He sells like, $2 million worth of tickets to his conference every three months to Vegas. And yeah. when he's there, 300 people will upsell to a $30,000 a year coaching program because they love Ryan. 
It is fascinating. And Matt and I were on a call with Ryan like March 20. You know, it was probably like April or May 2020. We're talking about ideas. And I think he was just starting to grow his YouTube yep. and the and he has just built something really incredible. So that's just as important. Building that online persona, building that on online reputation. It's also the only reason an agent shouldn't screw someone just for the commission because the world is yes. you know, life is long. And you should be playing for the long game. And the long game is like actually saying you shouldn't actually buy this. Like the, the, the glass, the window guy I used forever is the one that told me, Hey, I got that covered under warranty and I didn't have to charge you. I wouldn't have known. Um, I think, I mean, I know we only got a few minutes left. I think this was a fantastic conversation. I think I've got a great uh, piece of information that I think ties a lot of this together. So today the national debt clock is at 33 trillion. 509 billion mm. 30 days ago it was 33 trillion so in the last 30 days we've added 500 billion to our national debt so wait what like put that into perspective we're at 33 and a half trillion we were at 33 which means next month we'll be at 34 trillion which means by the end of the year, we'll be at 35 trillion. We're adding a trillion every 60 days Jesus. to our national debt. And we were like, like, man, like prior to 2020, like 2020 was the huge increase. And in, uh, let's see, in 2000, and uh, if I'm reading these stats right, right, we had, you know, we were like 30% less just a few years ago. Right. So we were at 20 a few years ago, and now we're adding a trillion every other month. That is a fascinating, hard to understand. Like, I, when, I, when I kept looking at that, it was like so hard to comprehend. Wait, what? Right. Yeah. How do you wrap your head around that? Right. We're adding what, what percentage is, is, is 500 billion um, uh, divided by 33? Right? Yeah. <laughs> like 3%. We're adding, yeah, it's like a percent, a percent and a half percent a month. And a half. Yeah. So crazy. Anyway, I thought that was fascinating. Um, to, to like when I saw that, I th- just thought it was absolutely crazy as I was reading that. So I think we'd been talking about inflation and rates and like what's going to change and like, you know, our conspiracy theorists of are we at the end of the world or not and all these different oh, pe- pieces. But stress is happening. Stress is happening to the U.S. government um, with wars and with money. Stress is happening to people running out of debt and credit cards getting cut off for the first time. And so, but giant gazillion dollar companies are created during this time. So if everybody could just keep the attitude that Matty A has right now. Yep. That like, like gonna say. If, you ha- if you do have holes in your ship right now, I've got holes in a few parts of my ship right now. I got a few old flips that are just dragging us down that are just, I just need to get rid of them. So if you have some holes you need to plug in your boats, plug the holes now. Yes. Do everything you can to plug the holes, take the lick, sell the house at a loss, do the thing to like clear the baggage to start fresh. Mm-hmm. Because once you don't have the baggage anymore, one of the biggest opportunities people have seen is going to be over the next two to three months with some pretty, you know, creative opportunities that are out there we saw so many memes that were like i wish i would have bought more houses in 2009 but i was two years old right so you see that you've seen that meme. the biggest mistake they made was not buying in the first foreclosure crisis but they weren't born yet the this is that next time right i mean covid was a time some of us saw it but but anyway stay hopeful there's a lot of like news and sadness and stuff out there 
So clear. So plug the holes. Stay hopeful. Any last thoughts from you guys, or just comprehension yeah. on the thirty three trillion? Hopeful, stay on your routines. Keep grounded. Keep meditating. Maddie, bring us home, brother. You literally, we we must all be synced up and synergized right now because I wrote down H O P E. In times like right now, we need hope. Don't lean into the fear. Lean into hope, and ultimately lean into action. And uh, I saw an acronym the other day that was tied to hope and it was help one person every day. And I, I think that, that when, we, when we can get out of just trying to serve ourselves, don't get me wrong, you know I'm taking action every day on my goals, my dreams and selfishly trying to move the needle forward. But I think also if we can make sure I always use that barrel of monkeys analogy, you know, uh, the little plastic, you know, figurines that you link up, right? What do those plastic monkeys look like? There's always one hand up and there's one hand down. And it's creating a link of trying to find a way to get up to that next level yourself. But it's also making sure that you're pulling people along with you. And I think right now, more than ever, we need that barrel of monkeys approach of, hey, let's try and continue to level up. Let's get after it. Let's not sit patient. Let's not get complacent. Let's get active. Let's lean in. Let's do the hard work right now. But let's also pull some people along with us because I know there's a lot of other people that are feeling a little hopeless right now. And sometimes you can lend that belief to somebody else and completely transform their life. And that's what I'm going to be focusing on. Another thing that I want to add to that is I think a lot of people are struggling through things and they just don't know how to ask for help. So Mooch, maybe going back to the whole broker thing is there's a great opportunity right now. If you have nothing to sell, reach out to people and see if they can help them, help them with their portfolios, you know get the weights off the boats, get, get the airplane lighter, figure out what it takes for the investors to be prepared for the next season. You don't have necessarily always have to have something to sell. And I think even for us, like reach out to reach out to customers, even if you don't have a product to sell, reach out to your employees, even if you don't have to give them a review, just like stay connected, do good things, give people hope. I love that uh, acronym. Um, let's wrap up here. An amazing, I think this is episode number 10. Another amazing episode of the King's Table. Uh, appreciate you guys so much for listening. I think this week, this episode can only be found on the Rich Equation podcast. Uh, you can find it on all main uh, podcast platforms. My name is Ashish Nathu. It's on the Rich Equation podcast. And for the next four weeks, we're going to rotate it on all of our podcasts. Today, I was joined by Mooch, Mattier, and... Uh, Mike Ayala joined us for a little bit. So really our pleasure to keep recording. If you have any questions, reach out to us on any of our social media uh, platforms or you can text Maddie. Um, Love you guys. 447-1555. We appreciate you guys for tuning in and supporting the show. Hey, and my rock star listeners, don't just have this be the only time you've listened to The Rich Equation, right? Mm. Hit like, hit subscribe. Let's help give Ashish some love and check out some of his other podcasts. Love you guys. Great episode. I know. Peace.